Welcome to Bootstrappers, a program designed to bring you up-to-the-minute ideas and concepts to understand what it takes to succeed in business and life. Each week, we'll bring you guests and ideas you can't find anywhere else. Bootstrappers is a production of Anaquim LLC. Now let's lace up those business boots and join Bootstrappers with Jeremy and Gwen Aspen. Welcome to this episode of Bootstrappers. I'm your host, Gwen Aspen, president of Anaquim. And Bootstrappers is a show where we talk to business people about all kinds of things, entrepreneur and business related. Today, we're talking to my wonderful friend, Paul Vachesky. Paul is the executive vice president of Nebraska Realty and the director of Randall School of Real Estate here in Omaha, Nebraska. And he's been educating realtors for over 20 years. Also, you have to check out his amazing YouTube channel called The Real Estate Classroom. Um, Today, we're just going to talk about risks that property managers face. You know, we get so involved in the day-to-day operations of our business, sometimes we forget to take a step back and think about the things that really could be traumatic for it, like fair housing, or um, lead-based paint complaints, or keeping our people safe. There are a number of things. So we're going to talk to Paul about those risks and mitigating them. So Paul, I think we should start with fair housing, because you came and spoke to Wistar Group. You do our fair housing training every year. Um, And you mentioned some new things that have changed recently with the fair housing law. What are the big changes? Um, Well, there's been several I want to say inferred changes. That's where it it isn't necessarily written into the law or into the regulation, but we're still being expected to comply with them. So for example, you know, you're talking about risk and and the things that we never thought of 10 years ago today are now PC, like transgenderism and gender identity, which translates into those people needing to get housing. And from a property manager point of view, how do we deal with those? And, And there really isn't a lot of training on it. No, and uh, like the for the transgen, one of the things that you had mentioned was that if someone comes in and their application has one name, but they indicate they'd like to be called something else, if you call them their legal name, you're in a lot of trouble. What that brought up for us was, I think our software is is a bias. Like it really creates a whole software transformation. You have to really think about what name's going to pull up for the for the vendor or for the maintenance guy when they come, when they're going to that person's house, make sure they address them by the correct name, right? That is correct. And it's also just not a risk management thing. It's really a customer service thing yes. too, right? And, and, and I think in the property management community, we, tech, we get technical a lot of times and we forget the customer service side of it. So uh, what she's talking about is, and it, uh, again, it depends on the locality. I know a lot of people that live in other states listen to this podcast mm-hmm. as well, but uh, it's something that you have to identify with. So let's say that Tom walks in to your property management facility, but Tom is dressed like Sally. And Tom introduces himself as Sally. It's very important to whoever's contact, who has contact with Tom, refers to Tom as Sally because they introduced themselves as Sally. Now, when if it gets to the point where you do the application, If Tom's legal name is Tom, and of course, if you are not asking for at least one photo ID, government-issued photo ID, then you should, uh, the name on that government photo ID has to match the name that's put on the application. But it doesn't mean that Tom wants to be referred to as Tom. Tom wants to be referred to as Sally. And it's a little confusing, but it's these little things that you have to know. So when you're doing your process for for evaluating whether or not you're going to rent to him, we're going to do it as Tom. However... From there forward, it's really important that you have a mechanism within your system to identify Tom as Sally. So when the maintenance person does show up or, you know, accounting has to show up or call about a a check issue or whatever, we are we are accurately calling her who she wants to be identified as is Sally. Exactly. And so in this computer system, because we were just taking that to the step one step further, because it makes total sense. And obviously, you want to treat your renters with respect and uh, make sure that you provide a great customer service experience. But we didn't have a name, like a a user-defined field for preferred name. Right. 
So then it's like, okay, I guess we have to do that. And then now all of our processes and procedures have to lead with preferred name. And then all of our letters have to be preferred name instead of you know the name on the lease. So it really is something that you have to think about when there is a change like that, or you finally become cognizant of something that's important to people, how you're gonna make all your processes and procedures lead with that. So that was like a super interesting thing. Well, and think of this, I use the example of Tom and Sally, but what happens if it's Jim and Jim wants to be called uh, a Buck? Right. right. You know, what I mean, the right. nicknames are important. Uh, one one technical thing I would like to bring up with that, because it's very important. A question that I get a lot is, well, what do we put on our notices? You mm. know, like an eviction notice or a mm. three day notice to pay or quit or whatever you have for your state. Well, you still got to go by their legal name. And then we use the AKA, also known as. So it'd be Tom Smith, AKA Sally Smith. So we put the identification in both formats within that notice. I think that's very appropriate, especially if if it's uh, in those states or jurisdictions where this is a protected class. It's not a protected class in every jurisdiction, but definitely in those jurisdictions that it is, we need to make sure we do that. Oh, interesting. So everybody has to kind of read up on that in their local area. Absolutely. Because remember, fair housing is federal, it's state, and it's local. And some of the most strict laws to comply with is actually local, like city and county. Yeah, I can Chicago, imagine. Chicago, LA have some of the most strict fair housing rules you got to follow in the country. And since this is on radio in Omaha, what are the, is Omaha have that ordinance in place? They do not. What about Council Bluffs? Uh, Council Bluffs does not, neither does Iowa. However, we have to always be aware of the case of first impressions. There are a lot of the uh, fair housing nonprofit groups uh, that are always looking to change a law or change a policy or routine. And a lot of times they use a specific case mm. to try to get it to change, right? And they use the court systems or they use the HUD process or whatever the case and may be. And you don't want it to be you. That's right. And we, you yes. don't want it to be you. And secondly is, don't forget the customer service element to this. And I know for you property managers out there, I know we overlook that, but you can't. If Tom wants to be called Buck and we have a process in place where we can do that, we should do that. Absolutely. Um, because it is getting more competitive out there. It is. And um, you want people to have a good experience with the company. What I've noticed is if we don't onboard someone properly or if they move in and the house is dirty, the rest of that relationship is garbage. That is true. And it's just a pile on effect where they think that um, everything that we do that might even be a small, minor mistake becomes blown up. And I think that's with any customer service. If you're not in property management and you're listening to this, any customer service experience, if it's bad at the front end, everything else is the entire relationship. Yes. You know, and it's interesting because as someone who does sensitivity training, and that's where I go in, where a company gets busted for some kind of fair housing violation. And part of that remedy is training. And I'll go in and do the training. When you break a fair housing complaint down and its components, I would say 90% of the time that I've been involved with that training, it all started as a customer service issue. Oh, I can totally imagine. So, and just to break from the fair housing, but even, you know, in Omaha and at Wistar Group, we could do 60 turns in two months, you know, in the summertime. And on occasion, there would be like a house that wasn't to their standards. Right. And so as a quality assurance manager, I would go way above and beyond to make that right. Bring chocolates, flowers, meet with the maintenance guy to go over it again. Because the time on the front end that you spend is totally worth it to prevent your team from being stressed out on the back end. So, and this is just one other component to consider. You know what else? That's You bring up a good point. One of the... I guess, objections that I get to what we're talking about here is, well, maybe in this price range you would do it, but not in this price range. Mm. And that's really not the right way to think because assuming you 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 qualify your tenant and they're qualified, that means they're, they're a good quality tenant, whether they can afford 500 bucks a month and they're a good quality tenant because you rented to them or they're 15 or 2,500, it shouldn't matter. The same process should apply. And from a fair housing point of view, and a customer service point of view, it should apply. And uh, I mean, someone even in a low price point unit can cause you even more havoc yes. 
I mean, they can get all their friends to write you negative reviews if they're mad. Um, They can hold up your customer service line and yell at your front desk lady who you love and admire and want to be happy and just make people's lives. Make your life. (laughs) Your life a living hell. (laughs) So I think that making sure that not only are our clients are happy, um, like our homeowners that we have the business from, but also the tenants are happy is so important to keeping your staff from getting burned out. It's true. So. And keeping the doors open. And, and, and here's my thing. I'm, I'm very just kind of black and white about it. This is a business. And if you don't want to do what it takes, then don't be in the business. Mm-hmm. It's really that simple. Yeah. And just care about all the people. Absolutely. I mean, we all lived in crappy apartments at one point, right? Uh, I did. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so one other thing that's uh, big in fair housing that you mentioned was this People, people wanting to sleep in the apartments before yes. they rent them. Can you tell us more about that? Because that was shocking to me. Because I would have done an automatic no. Like, hey, I'm looking at this apartment. Could I just try it out for a night? I would have been like, uh, no. But you, tell us why <laughs> the answer should be maybe. Well, there, there's two parts to this. There is the sale, for sale. We're actually seeing it more on the for sale side than the property management side right now. But what we see a lot in the for sale side is, the prospective buyer wants to stay the night in the house because they want to check out the karma. Karma is a big thing, is especially with some of the, the cultures in the Far East. And even now with the uprising of the, Nash, or the Native American communities mm-hmm. and getting back to their traditional roots, a house has karma and it's very the spiritual side of it. And it's very important. That's bleeding over into the property management side. So if you're a manager, or a landlord, if you're selling one of your properties and you get this request from a tenant that says, hey, I, I want to stay the night in the house, your, your initial reaction is so important and it shouldn't be, heck no, I'm not doing it. You need to think about it and ask, well, why would you want to do that? And that's a fair question. Why do you need to stay the night? And if they start going down the road of, listen, I'm this faith or I'm this culture, and it's important to me, you really have to take into consideration. Now, does it rise to the level of a fair housing complaint? In some jurisdictions and across the country, it is. That's protected. And you have to make, that's, a, that's what we call a reasonable accommodation request. And if you can reasonably accommodate, you do it. Uh, if you are, a, if you are a, a real estate professional that's out there, because you guys have a lot of real estate agents that listen to the show as well, your answer should never be no, because it's not your house. You should say, well, I don't know. Let me find out. Why do you want to do it? Get the information, go to your seller, and then pass it on. And then let the seller make the determination. But this is only going to get more and more uh, prevalent as, you know, as the, the cultural side of people, that people are really trying to get back to their roots. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of cool. I think it's cool. But what are, what's the alternative? What are those other people who want to just spend the night in your million dollar house. Oh yeah. Well, you always get those. Now we don't see this a whole lot on the property management side, but we do see that what we call the million dollar club here in Omaha, where the homes that are a million dollars or more that are for sale and they just want to have sex in the house. (laughs) (laughs) It's no joke. And and there's sometimes uh, they're willing to pay a thousand or 1500 bucks to have sex in this $10 million house or this $5 million house. Oh my God. So yeah, that's the other side of it, which is not culturally based per se. That's, that's (laughs) crazy. So what about tenant on tenant harassment? Yes. That's a big one too, right? It is. In fact, that's kind of new. Is that kind of new on the radar? So tenant on tenant harassment is not. However, the fair housing side of it is. So if you're a property manager or a landlord, and you have knowledge that a tenant is being racially uh, discriminatory against somebody else, and that's broadly defined, then, and, and you have knowledge because somebody came to you as a property manager and said, do something about it. If you fail to do something about it, then they can file a fair housing complaint against not only your tenant, but you. Mm. That's a big thing that's happening. <clears throat> and you know why this is even tougher is that people have a lot of after hours services that take the calls. And um, if that after hours service does not communicate that to you or your vendor does not communicate to you, you could still be in trouble, right? You're ultimately responsible for anything that happens on your community, including your vendors. So for those of you that are using vendors, Roto-Rooter, whoever it may be, 
you got to have in your service agreements or at least a conversation with them. If there's anything like that that happens, you have to let me know so we can document it. Yes. And I would recommend that for any after hour services as well. Um, Absolutely. Just put that in the notes. Um, and I did have that happen where somebody, I guess it wasn't racially motivated, but um, someone called in in the after hours line when I was managing it at the beginning because we have a 24-hour call center rent manager um, call center and somebody was like, my neighbor stole my air conditioner. And, you know, I was like, well, call the police if someone steals your property. I mean, but I mean, that's still important to have it in the notes that it, because it could escalate to something else. You don't know if it's going to be a fair housing issue, right? I mean, anybody can make a complaint, anybody. And then it's up to you to defend it. Documentation is what we need for defending So let's say it is a racially charged issue. Is it a 14, 30-day notice? Like, what's the repercussion that you have to... It depends. Uh, If if it falls under that category, we do the 14, 30-day notice. However, we do have this five-day clear and present danger danger notice in Nebraska. So if it's threatening, so there Mm. was threatened, you know, physical violence, I say you use the five-day notice, and it's not curable like the 14, 30 is. They're gone. Oh, wow. Okay. Is that in a lot of states or is that very specific? Uh, Most states have some type of clear and present danger. The notice period is different. We're one of the last states in the union that that passed this. Yeah, because it it seems relatively new to me. It is. It's a couple years old and and it's a great tool for property managers and landlords to use for those that are dealing drugs or, or there's drugs at the at the uh, in their unit, maybe the maintenance person seen it, or maybe there's that racial uh, connotation that 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 uh, where they got into it. The two the two tenants got into it, an argument, and they're they're throwing out racial slurs, and there was an indication of violence that you know they were. Oh, you you've been there, you've seen it all. Oh but my the five day yes. notice is a great tool to say you're gone, and you don't need proof. It's actually an allegation based notice as well. Really? Yeah, it is. So cool. pretty cool. Paul, in the break, we were just talking about. Um, how you can't use the word children or kids. Yeah, it's it's not advisable. And in some cases, it's absolutely forbidden. Let, let's just talk about that more because it is. It's so natural to be like, oh, and do you have kids? How old are they? I mean, that's just how we talk to each other when we meet somebody. So just give us the rundown on sure. where this is going to get us in trouble. So, so typically it happens during those awkward times when we're trying to, to pass the time, maybe between the time the leasing agent may, meets the prospective tenant in the street and they're walking up to the third floor apartment, that awkward downtime when you're just trying to make a conversation. And we have a tendency to start asking questions that we shouldn't. The leasing agent, hey, how many kids do you have? Or did you just move here? Those are what I call qualifying questions. And leasing agents shouldn't be doing that. I, I always train uh, compartmentalization. Everybody has a real specific purpose. And the reason we do it is so we don't get into trouble. Uh, Let me give you an example of how technical fair housing can be when it comes to this. I did sensitivity training in Oklahoma one time where the the reason they got busted and the reason that they kind of pled guilty and, and I was down there doing the training is they had a pool. Local ordinance said that you have to have someone that's an adult if you're under the age of 16. So they put up a sign that said no children under the age of 16 without adult supervision. Mm. That's a technical violation. If it would have said no one under the age of 16 may swim without adult supervision, that's perfectly okay. Does it mean the same thing? Yes, but because they used the word children, that got them busted. I, I, you know, from a risk management point of view, I'm a big fan of, it's just, from risk management spectrum, I'm all the way on the right at 12. And that is absolutely take nothing for granted. Two words, kids and children should never be put in an application. It should never be put in a lease agreement. It should never be in a conversation, period. Wow. Okay. So let's say we are doing an application and we want to know how many people are in the apartment. We need to know minors versus uh, adults. Sure. What, what kind of conversation or what kind of language should we use to be on the safe side. So I wouldn't ask per se in the uh, on the application. There there is some um, debate over whether it should be on the application. I personally don't feel it should be. This is where we want it on the lease agreement, though. And we simply put, I need the names and the ages of the occupants. You're already probably going to have the name of the adults because and the date of birth of the adults because of the application. I never really want the the date of birth of the children. I only want the 
the name and the age of the app or of the occupants. Occupants. So right. occupants, occupants is the correct word. It is absolutely. So and if I we do train our people to just call everybody an occupant, correct. then we're going to be fine. Absolutely. Okay. I don't even like, I've seen it where they've had uh, adult occupants and minor occupants. I don't even like that. I just want the list of the occupants and their ages. Okay. So let's say, I'm just curious if this is problematic in any way. Let's say we have a maintenance guy going to do some maintenance on an apartment. They knock on the door and it's answered by like a seven-year-old. And they right. say, "Is there? do they have to use specific language in that? You should. In fact, what I'm going to ask is if the seven-year-old, hey, is is uh, your mom or dad home? Or is there an adult home? Anyone? In fact, be specific. Specific. Is there anyone the age of 18 or older? That's what I was going to say. Does that's it, the best. 18 or over home. You, so that's how you would address it. That's how I, when I train, that's how I train to do it. Is there anyone at the age of 18 or older home? I know it sounds real sterile and very uninviting, but we have to be because that process is putting us at substantial risk of a fair housing complaint. And now we got to look at it from a, pro, uh, a risk management spectrum or continuum. The best thing to do is say, is there anyone that's 18 or older that's home? And if there's not, that maintenance person should not go in. Yes, of course. Ooh. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that is the holy grail of maintenance. So I would say another area where personally, whenever we hire somebody, we talk about this. It's You get in a lot of trouble with customer service right. people. That's the biggest risk. Somebody calls and says, hey, I'm a single mom. I just moved to the area. I'm looking for a safe house um, with great schools. Do you have anything available? And your natural reaction is to be like, oh my gosh, absolutely. My manager lives right in this neighborhood. We right. have a house. Um, her kids are really smart. Her daughter's like this crazy violinist. And it, so I know the school is good and you can't do that, right? Tell no. us more about that. Well, the first thing is, is when you go down that road, you're going to, the potential landmines for fair housing violations increase substantially. You don't know if it's a tester on that line that's calling you or a legitimate prospective applicant. And a tester is somebody that intentionally calls a firm or intentionally goes down to the firm and they test you to see if you're, uh, and they'll ask you questions and those type of things to see if you're going to trip up. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's their job. That's what they get paid to do. Uh, Here's what I always tell people is, Focus on amenities only, nothing else, no personalities. Now, that opening conversation was all about personalities, right? Very personal things. The response should be, well, we have currently 39 homes that are for sale all over Omaha. Uh, What part of Omaha do you want to live in? Do you know? Here is the three bedrooms, the two bedrooms, the five bedrooms, the apartments, the single family homes. Always focus on amenities. And anytime they go down a different road like schools and those type of things, be honest. Just say, you know what? I don't know what your specific needs are. So you got to contact the school districts yourself for that uh, for that information. Notice I didn't say I didn't know. I don't know the specific needs of your children. I didn't say that. I don't know what your specific needs are. Mm. So contact uh, the, the school districts directly. And it really helps for those customer service people if, you, if they have scripts that they yes, can follow. Many, that is a great. Many, uh, many leasing agents do that. So would it be okay if I said, you know, safe schools mean, or um, safe neighborhoods mean different things to different people, good schools mean different things to different people. I'd be happy to send you a crime statistics website for the city and a test scores website for the schools. I think that's perfectly appropriate. And you never use the two forbidden words, children and kids. Children and kids. Okay, we've got to ingrain that into everybody's head. Absolutely. In fact, I did training at a property management company one time and they had on the wall, it was painted on, right? Oh, no way. uh, Words we we never uh, discuss, kids, or we never say, children and kids. Was there anything else (laughs) on the list? Uh, No, that was it. (laughs) You know, sex for rent, no big deal. But kids, children, (laughs) nope, not happening. That's really funny. So um, we've there's a big thing in the industry about the service animals and mm-hmm. emotional support animals. So where does that stand right now? Because I know you're always on the cutting edge of of the latest mm. lawsuits and all that. You know, it it is here's where it is for from the macro level. More and more management companies are saying screw it. There is no such thing as a no pets policy anymore. It's a pet because what's happening is for those that are legally entitled to a emotional support animal or a comfort animal or a service animal, 
it's very, very easy to get one. And so what a lot of the tenants will do that want pets, but they're not entitled to one, they simply go down to their pastor or somebody and get a note. That's it. They're going to get that cat or that dog. So a lot of the property management companies have simply just decided we're going to accept pets. Mm. If it's a service animal or a comfort animal, we're not going to collect the the, the pet deposit, mm. those type of things. But the ones that want the pet, that are willing to go through the process of getting that entitlement, if they know uh, that they're allowed to have pets, they won't do it anyways. Even if it saves them money, that's statistically what's what's been proven. So mm. from a risk management point of view and a profit center point of view, the property managers are going, well, screw it then. We're just going to allow pets. The ones that have pets, we're going to charge them. The ones that, that are entitled to the service animal, we're not going to collect anything. Oh, wow. Okay. That, that's really the cutting edge. That's what's happening. So it's really a conversation you have to have with the owner on the front end and just yeah. say, look, owner, here's the deal. Like, we're not going to be able to keep this uh, this building from having pets in it because I, I managed this really high-end apartment building out in West Omaha, and the woman was adamant, no pets. And, of course, like, within a month, we get a service animal. Right. And um, she was like, that doesn't look like a service animal. Oh, no. And I was like, no, uh-huh. well, this is why you paid me to manage it, right? Like, we can't deny it. Right. They had all the right stuff, and the kid had autism or whatever. And so, and then it just became a huge fight with all the other tenants. Well, there's a dog over there and you can't tell them, right? You can't tell them that it's a service animal, right? That's yeah, part we call of the that the, the fluffy incident because you know, once they get fluffy, the dog, they're, they're stroking it in the common areas going, I got a dog and you don't meet fluffy. And what does the other tenants do? They're like, well, wait a minute. I want a dog. And the dog barked. It's not like it never barked. And they're like, that dog barks. You won't tell me anything about it. It was just the most uncomfortable thing. And it so, is. So that's why it's better to just level with the owners as soon as you get the contract to manage the house and just say, really, we're not going to be able to manage this that well. The The industry has gone past that point. I agree with that. But I, I, I want to kind of key in on something you said here because too often – property managers will sign the management agreement before they negotiate things like that. I think if you have your business model in play, and you should, before you start taking on any kind of clients and you're developing your your business, have a business model. What is it? And that conversation needs to be had because it may be that you as a manager, you don't want that property if they're going to accept pets. Mm-hmm. Have that decision or not made. accept pets. Either way. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Either yeah. either this is going to be a pet free or we're going to accept pets. And and that's something, if that's outside your business model, then you need to have that decision made before you start negotiating with the owner. It is not okay to get the, the contract signed and then let's talk about this. Now, if you already have one signed and you're changing your model, that's one thing. But I think it's a really, really good idea that when you're having these conversations with issues like this, to have those conversations with your owner. And here's the other thing too, is you as a property manager, you never assume the owner knows what a service animal is or a comfort animal. No. Ever. And never. if if they if if you're talking with them and like you just pointed out where, well, they don't look that doesn't look like a service animal. They obviously have not had training. You might want to recommend that they come in to your training process when it's time for fair housing training. Well, hopefully, I mean, if they're paying, I mean, this is my philosophy. If you're paying me to manage the property, then I'm going to manage the property. I'm going to keep you from getting sued. So they should have no interaction with any of the tenants or any interaction because they'll just... No good deed goes unpunished. You're right, and but how many times have you seen Why hire this? me? Oh my gosh, I know. We're, but we're this is why commingled. it is important to set the boundaries on the front end. With mm-hmm. any owner of a property, it's a marriage. It's like a marriage. That's a good analogy. And so you got to have the ground rules and the guardrails done on the front end, and then everything will go smoothly afterwards. But um, If I could recommend one thing uh, from a risk management point of view, if your owner is going to be involved with any process that a manager normally does, maintenance or anything, it is a stipulation that should be in that management contract that the owner is required to go through annual fair housing along with you and your staff at a minimum. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, if that owner gets busted for something, you're going down with the owner. 
oh, even yeah. though you are not involved in the process. Here's another area where that gets really sticky. Um, if you have a, a community that you're managing and the owner really cares about the marketing yeah, and they want it marketed a certain way and you're like, this is illegal. Like we can't just say it's for young professionals right? Uh, or anything to that degree. So marketing is an area where I see people making a lot of mistakes in fair housing because they're outsourcing it because they don't understand it. They don't understand search engine optimization. They don't understand um, social media. So they outsource it. And the person, whoever's doing their content, has no clue about fair housing or the owner is too involved in that aspect as well. Do you see that too? Have you seen that? And All the time. Uh, the good thing about print advertising is they go through more fair housing training than you or I do. So they know it, but it's the online part, mm -hmm. the web developers that doesn't, and they're exempted. Unlike a publisher that's not a web developer is exempted from any kind of prosecution, the newspaper is not. Uh, there's two things with that. Number one, we always, we always focus on amenities. We should never get down the road of personalities or anything personal like young professionals or this would be great for old people or whatever, right? It's three bedroom, two car garage, the amenities. The other part, it, and it's a little more uh, complicated and it's, it takes a little bit more time to explain, but the back end, what we're starting to see in the fair housing compliance industry is if I have a, if I have a website and I want it to be optimized, there's a lot of meta tags that's happening behind the scenes. If they can prove that you have tagged that, that website in such a way that violates fair housing, they're starting to come after oh, the wow. fair housing people or the fair housing people are coming after the property managers and, and whatnot. And let me give you an example. Uh, let's say that we know that publicly the public facing site would never say, hey, this is great for a Latino family. Right. But in the back end, we meta tag it that says uh, Latino housing, which is a obvious fair housing complaint, but it's not public. People can't see it. But there are ways that you can see it if you know how to do basic programming. Mm. That's still a, a fair housing violation. So when you're talking to these web developers and they want to meta tag it, it's a good idea that you say before you tag anything for SEO, I need to review the words and phrases. I love that. That's great advice. Also, the people who are responding to Facebook posts. Yes. People will pay somebody, even kids, to respond because the questions are usually really dumb. They're like, how much is it? You're like, well, if you press the button, you can see how much it is. But they just, people are lazy and they'll ask. So they'll hire it out to any kid down the street. And that's where you get a lot. I've, I've seen some of these responses back and forth and they're just fair housing disasters. So that's kind of a blind spot for people as well. Absolutely. And again... Anybody, and, and, you and I, you and I have talked about this numerous times, anybody that's involved with any part of your process where they're going to touch or reach out to or have communication or contact with any prospective applicant, tenant, or actual, they got to have fair housing training. And that's, that's, that's a big example right there. So the big thing is maintenance guys going in or gals going into people's houses. What are right. some of the big things that you've seen that have caused harm to those folks? So from a risk management point of view, actually the biggest risk that I see based on my, my own interactions and consulting is lack of the pro proper insurance. That's probably mm. the biggest thing for the that vendors or for everybody involved. Oh, wow. So the property manager is not adequately insured. They don't have the right type of insurance. Uh, the individual landlord doesn't. That's really what sets the tone. And a lot of times what you find is your insurance agent requires or insurance company, especially with the bigger communities, they require a certain type of training on an annual basis for, for staff and stuff. So that's the first thing. Then we get into the micro side of things like the, like you mentioned earlier about the maintenance guy coming up and answering the phone and or answering the door or the door is answered and there's a naked woman. That happens all the time in this business, right? People don't realize that. Yeah. Uh, it's even worse when it's a naked or or scanty clothed minor. That's when it even oh, gets more scary. Geez. Uh, like a seven-year-old that's <laughs> naked that answers the door. Oh, geez. But okay, so what do you advise? Let, let, I want to take a few step back, sure. steps back. Let's start with... The insurance piece. Sure. So is that a failure of the onboarding process? So when the property manager is onboarding the property, they're doing a poor job researching the insurance of the owner? 
Absolutely. And, and quite frankly, part of your management contract should give you, the manager, permission to have those conversations with your attorney, your accountant, those type of things as on a need to know basis, certainly. But you should be in contact with that insurance agent. Hey, do we have everything set up? And the property manager needs to know what's adequate and what's not. Just having a $100,000 insurance policy because it's the bare minimum, that's not okay. And if I'm a property manager, uh, if my owner is not properly insured, any carryovers coming over to the management side. So there's a lot of risk for you as managers. You got to have that answer. Are you adequately prepared? In fact, many do require in the management contract that they have X amount of liability insurance. They have to have the most that you can get on your homeowners and then an umbrella insurance, those type of things. You got to have those conversations. Mm, I like that a lot. The other thing is you were talking about the management company not being adequately insured in and of itself. So I do personally, from my own experience of being in this industry for like 15 years, I guess now I don't really want to count, but um, is to have your regular insurance policy and then have an umbrella policy by a different company. Because as you know, and I don't want to get into the details, but we had that big gas explosion a few years back. And we had one company that it blew up essentially the whole block. And that company insured all of the houses that got damaged. So they wanted to settle, even though it wasn't our fault. And so the umbrella, we had to use the umbrella policy to sue our other insurance company to not just settle with itself, essentially. And so I do recommend that from a risk management perspective. I was super glad that we had two policies. Absolutely. And I will tell you, and I am familiar with some of the structure and the process of Wistar, but... I will tell you that 90% of the property management companies anywhere in this country is not properly insured. Mm. The other part is too, and everybody overlooks this, they want to get an LLC or specifically maybe a corporation. The other important part is with a corporation, you have to do meetings and you have to have minutes. Oh yeah. And if you don't do that one little screw up, they pierce that corporate veil and all of a sudden you, the property manager, they're coming after your personal assets. That is just as equally important. And when I do consulting and I go out and I look at their their articles of organization and stuff, they're a disaster. When's the last time you had a, a, a meeting? Oh, we've never had a meeting. Who's That's your officer? That's a huge, uh, huge deal. What is an officer? I had one person tell me, what's an officer? Oh, they had God. an S corporation. What's an officer? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And uh, I mean, those meetings are fun. You can write them off. You can have dinner with it. You, you know, can. You can go on a vacation. Um, so they can be fun. It's not all business. And you can... Um, print off a lot of like the proper documentation off the internet, sign it, you know, say exactly what you discussed, have a few meeting minutes, and that's sufficient, correct? You know, to answer that question, it's real simple to get what you need because it is state by state for the requirements, but you're a business. Talk to your attorney, talk to your accountant. Mm-hmm. They can set you up. And I get the, here's the pushback. Well, yeah, but that's going to cost me 300 bucks. Really? Well, absolutely. That's the cost of doing business. Do you want to run a business or not? If you're Mm -hmm. going to do the business, do it right or don't do it at all. But that is such a key important part for a liability. Again, if you don't want to do it, then please don't be in the business. Let somebody else do it that's going to do it right. Oh, that's great advice. Great advice. So let's go back to the naked lady. Sure. We always end up with the naked lady. (laughs) So let's say you have a maintenance guy and he comes to the door and there's a naked lady there. What do you advise them to do? A couple of things. Number one, don't ever make any remarks. Man, those are great boobs or whatever. And I have done training where that's happened, right? We make no reference to any body part. Number two is you just simply say, I didn't, you know, I didn't know you were home or whatever the case may be. Do you still want me to do maintenance? Ask what that lady wants. You don't look at her boobs, look in her eyes, turn away. You see what I mean? It, 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 the thing is, is if you're not prepared for it, uh, and there's really no way to be because you get shocked. Uh, people, I'm sure, are shocked, and so we have to train on it so that they don't make Absolutely. a mistake in the moment. I actually did training one time where the maintenance guy that happened, and the maintenance guy goes, "Man, those are nice." <laughs> and then he goes, "Oops, I probably shouldn't have said that." <laughs> it's like, no, you shouldn't have. Um, but it happens, and you just simply turn your head away or turn around and just say, "Hey, I can come back at a different time or make another appointment. Do you want me to come in?" Most of the time, they'll they'll. Actually, the ones that show up in my experience and say, well, let me get a robe on. 
you know. Okay, so you just stand outside. Absolutely, until they tell you to come in. Okay, so what is a good time to use the camera? Because I know we've trained our people, like if you feel uncomfortable for any reason, turn on your camera, turn on some way to record the sound so that there's some kind of um, documentation of what actually happened. That gets a little bit more dicey, and because in every state is different. So, for example, in Nebraska, uh, you can videotape without any party knowing, but you can't have any audio to it. And then there is the the uh, the pleasure, the privilege of privacy. So, does the fact that the maintenance person that has a camera on walking into a lease premise is that invasion invasion mm. of their privacy? Uh, and, and it can be, and there's different scenarios. My recommendation is it's not a bad idea, but it also has to be high. These people have to be highly trained on when it's appropriate and not. And that has to be a policy. And it, it would be, be after trained. like a threatening situation. It, you know, it could like be. if someone were threatening you or you felt like something bad was going to happen. And then could you just announce, I'm going to start videotaping Well, this? you have to. Otherwise, none of it's. They can use it because it's illegal to, to videotape even. So let's say the maintenance person and, and that tenant start getting into an altercation because the video is fine, but because the law says any audio to be used, it ha- one party has to know. Certainly, you know, but is that an evasion of privacy because you're in their dwelling? And then it's a little different if it's he's in his dwelling and you're in the common area. How does that play out? You see what I mean? So. Uh, it's real important that whatever you choose to do, that everybody's on board and knows how to do it legally and it's documented because there are so many variations. However, on the flip side of that, any phone conversation, my opinion, anytime anybody calls into your property management company, it should be recorded. So I Period. see this a lot where people use antiquated phone systems oh. and they're not recording the yeah. calls. And that is a huge problem. Also, you get into that he said, she said stuff where, oh, no, but your leasing agent said that I could do this or that. And so saving all the audio really prevents the headache of that from happening. It's a it's a, a liability uh, or it's a uh, it's a liability prevention type process. The other thing is, too, is it's a great training tool. Awesome. training. Oh, tool. awesome. Training. So tool. then you can sit down with your customer service reps or whoever's taking that phone call and say this was good. This was bad. But from a liability perspective, if you're not if you're not recording phone calls, then again, get in the business or don't. But to not record even the small outfits, the ones that, that are managing 50 units, you can get apps and those type of things really cheap. Well, my recommendation is to get a phone system, VOIP phone system, yep. and then have the app on the phone so that when someone calls from their cell phone, which inevitably happens in our industry, the caller ID says the phone number of your office, not the person's cell phone. Because once people in leasing give out their cell phone, their life is over. It is. So if you want your people to stick around, not get um, burned out, and you want to have call recordings, that's the best way to, best approach. Uh, the other thing to re- don't forget about those direct messages on Facebook and those other social platforms. You have to have a system to document those things. Mm. And if you if you have a company cell phone or anything that can receive text, you got to save those. You mm. have to save them. So after somebody leaves, you want to save all the information. You do at least a minimum of a year because they it, it, on the federal level that the the person has a one year period of statute of limitations to file from the date of the alleged violation. So one year from the date of the alleged violation and states and localities can have that longer and they do. So you have to know what your state and locality rules are. But here in Nebraska, a year would be sufficient. Now, some people keep it three years and that's fine because or four years, depending on the type of statute of limitations they're trying to meet, whether it's contractual or whatever. But whatever it is, make sure it's the same. So if you're keeping your text for a year, keep everything else for a year. What you don't want to do is keep emails for a year and then your phone calls for mm. two. Keep it standard. Standard. And one other thing that uh, at Wistar we always do is if any maintenance person has an uneasy feeling about anything in a home, their job is to call the front office and have it documented real time in our computer system, whatever they thought the problem was. You guys have it down to a science. You should really put that out on a training platform and, you know, well, <laughs> so other people can learn we're from that. We're working on it. <laughs> well, Just saying. no, it is. It's good to call have. It, call it Anaquim. 
an epiphany. So Paul, you have been doing the sensitivity training all over the country lately, right? Yes, for okay, a while. Okay, so I don't yeah. know anything about this. <laughs> tell me more and tell us all the good stories because so, I know you have some juicy ones. For so this. husband cheats on wife. Oh, wrong, 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 <laughs> wrong, wrong. Uh, no, sensitivity training is where you have a property management company or a real estate sales firm or whatever the case may be. And for whatever reason, they've pled guilty or they were found guilty of the violation of the Fair Housing Act or or the Americans with Disabilities. Part of the resolution to all of that, besides civil penalties and stuff, is dumb dumb training. Sort of <laughs> like when you training. well, when you get busted speeding, <laughs> where do you go? You go to deferment by dumb dumb school. You know, it's the same thing. Uh, and so then they hire people like me to come and do three to six hours. Sometimes, if it's real egregious, it may be twelve hours, but that's what I do. And it's just fair housing training, and it it. And, and you and I had this discussion, and so you're not shocked, but I was shocked at the beginning of doing this at how many people never had fair housing training. In fact, I'm going to go do fair housing training here next month where this is a company that have been in the business over 40 years, and they've never had one structured fair housing class. Wow. Not one. And so none of their employees, that's where it all starts. The first thing you got to do is get fair housing training, not once. Every single year, that's what the industry, that the compliance folks want, what they want to see. And we at Wistar, we always hire you for two sessions because we know right. someone's going to miss it. So we, whenever we get the, it on the calendar, we're like, give us two times. Don't we always do that? Because one time is not enough. Every single person that works for you has to sign the sheet and Correct. say, I did the fair housing training. Another thing that I think um, companies don't do, which is putting them at risk. Um, and actually we found since we do it that people really like it is we have a um, safety committee. They meet once a month. They teach everybody in the office or everybody in maintenance how to do something maintenance related. They document it in a book and everybody signs it. That's that's a good policy. You're one of the very few that do that, though. And, and I that's love doing it, though, because it also shows our maintenance staff that we care about them. Right. We don't want them to get hurt. We don't want them to have problems or, uh, you know, health hazards or any kind of thing. So I think it sets the right tone that we care about you, take care of yourself. And by the way, we do things by the book. Well, and, and what leasing agents have to realize and maintenance people have to realize that under fair housing, not only is the manager a target, but so are you individually. So if that mm. individual leasing agent is the one who did the violation, well, the, both are going to get called into the viola into the, the process and they're going to want to know. The first thing they ask the investigators when you're when you go down that road is show me your training records. That's mm. essentially what they do. That's what they start with. Mm. That's the key thing under, at least from the fair housing perspective, everyone that is going to come into contact, even potentially, maybe with any kind of applicant, tenant, they got to get training. Also for the contractors, and I know it's hard for you small property managers to use leverage on this, uh, but the bigger ones do do this. If you're going to hire Roto-Rooter to go in and they're going to be your service provider and they go out and they commit some kind of violation, you're on the hook for them. Mm. And so you're responsible. So if you can leverage them to say, listen, come to training once a year, that would be great. Or you can bring the training to them. You Absolutely. can say, hey, I'll bring you pizza and just listen to me while you eat. I mean, that's how how we did it in pharma. When right. I was a pharmaceutical rep, We'd bring the food and then they do the education. So another big thing that I know we talked about and we just hadn't gotten to yet, but um, let's talk about lead-based paint because sure. this is a huge issue for property managers, right? What are you seeing out in the field? Uh, no one is what we call repair, reno renovation, repair, and paint certified. So in 2010, the EPA came out with some new regulations that said that if you're going to work on a pre-1978 house and it's a rental property, then you have to the work has to be done under the supervision of an RRP certified contractor. No one is doing it. No one. So how long? Well, you guys are because I, I know, but. Yeah. How, how long is the process to get trained on that RRP? So it depends on the level that you want. It's anywhere from one to two days to get the training. Uh, then you pay the, the registration or certification fee to get the endorsement from the EPA. You get your insurance bond. You get bonded, but that's it. You go through the training. It's simple to do. And then you can have all your, you only need one for a firm. 
You can have mm-hmm. one person and then you could have 50 or 60 maintenance people. Your job is to supervise those 50 or 60 to make sure that when they do repairs that the documentation is right and they're doing it in a workmanlike manner, in the safe manner. But you can't avoid it anymore. The and you just go to your local high. community college, right? And they train there. I mean, that's Absolutely. where we do ours. Is It's not hard to find. It's just important to have it on your checklist and make sure that you're doing Absolutely. it. Absolutely. $37,500 potentially per day, you're not in violation. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. And there are instances when the tenant can get half of that. Really? Yes. So, so there's, there's an, an incentive. incentive. It's incentive-based. Wow. Okay, so Paul, I, I just want to give you a little bit of a shout out here. So Paul, <laughs> you've done our fair housing training for years now. Mm-hmm. And actually, we've recorded your training and every remote professional that works with Anaquim sees your Fair Housing and American Disabilities Act class, which I get raving reviews about it. But if a firm wants to hire you, where do they find you? Because you could do this over Zoom to anybody, at least on the federal side, um, all over the country. So where can they find you? Randall School, R-A-N-D-A-L-L, RandallSchool.com. You can email me, Paul at Randall School. And then my cell phone, the whole world has it. It's 402-660-0395. Oh my gosh, you can't do that. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, but That was a good plug, wasn't it? You liked that? I loved it. (laughs) And then let's talk about your real estate um, classroom YouTube channel. Yeah, we got to talk about that, Gwen. See, It's amazing. So I was talking about our views, and then I I was like, yeah, I think we're doing pretty good, Paul. And then I go to your YouTube channel. You're pumping it up like it's awesome, and then they're going to go there, and man, this Paul dude is ugly. (laughs) No, you know what? Actually, uh, I have it all. My my content is already scheduled. I'm only 30% of where I want to be for the channel as a baseline. I'm focusing right now on the those that are that are trying to get their real estate license, their pre-licensing content. It's eventually going to go into the property management side and then things like fair housing and whatnot. So it's it's I'm trying to do two, three videos a week until it's all done, but it's going to be about a two-year project. That's great. Well, we're so happy that you're educating the community. It helps all of us in property management and real estate. The more education we get, the more professional we become. So thank you so much for being here, Paul. It was fun. Yeah. Get back on the radio (laughs) together. It's been a while. So, well, thank you so much, Paul Vicheski. And this is Bootstrappers. See you next week. This has been Bootstrappers, a unique presentation designed to help you better understand how the world turns. Contact Gwen or Jeremy at posts at bootstrappers.club or visit our website, anaquim.net. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and our YouTube channel. Thank you and join us next time for Bootstrappers.